Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm in a studio in London, in Soho to be precise, with Azim Azar, who is a tech entrepreneur, has a lot of experience of working with technology companies, but is also a podcaster. And he writes the Exponential View newsletter, which is the go-to place to think about the future. And we're going to be talking about his predictions for what's going to happen in the next decade. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more the print magazine, the LRB app, and unlimited access to that archive, all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. This is the first of two conversations that I'm recording with Azim, and the other one is going to go out on his podcast, the Exponential View podcast, and we will tell you how to find that at the end. You have 10 predictions for what the world might be like in 2030. They're pretty broad, but they're also in their way quite specific. Central to them is the thought that this is going to be the decade where climate change dominates our experience of politics, among many other things. I think it's fair to say you are relatively optimistic about some of it, though you preface your predictions by saying if there is a climate catastrophe, (laughs) which there could be, a lot of this goes into reverse. So there are events, and no one should predict events. Mm -hmm. Fool's game. So there could be climate events. I mean, Australian politics is a good example of how dangerous it is not to think that something could upend everything. But looking at the trends, you are quite optimistic both about the capacity of entrepreneurs, particularly entrepreneurs from the tech sector, getting a grip on this problem. And you're also and you'll tell me if I'm wrong about this, you're broadly optimistic about the heavy lifting capacity of the state to do some of the deep background work that's required, including some of the deep research required to get a grip on this problem, and that there could be coordinated action. Now, I get your optimism. I'm going to tell you in a minute why I still think it might not work. But am I right to say it's a broadly optimistic vision? I think we can be optimistic about having a path that might get us to resolving some of the climate issues. There are three dimensions to it. The first is the underlying technologies are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and they're doing so far faster than the best forecasters predicted even five years ago, let alone 20 years ago. So whether it's the efficiency of solar cells or the cost to store energy in lithium-ion batteries, we're doing better than we expected. The second thing is that there's a whole raft of technology entrepreneurs, people who understand how to build things that haven't been built before and build them quickly, whether it's a Facebook or a Snapchat or an Amazon, who are starting to see this as their calling. How can we apply our skills for better or worse that created these huge internet companies into quickly scaling up things that might help us tackle, mitigate climate change? And these people now see this as the central challenge, do they, or not yet? Not all of them, but a a large proportion of them. I mean, I I think five years ago, it would have been quite rare to find entrepreneurs in their large numbers talking about businesses with a sustainability angle. Today, uh, you see it right across the board. You see it from 
things like cellular agriculture, which is trying to figure out how to create proteins without using a cow or a, or a sheep, even areas like e-commerce. So anyone who's building a business that involves selling secondhand clothes now pitches it in the wrapper of sustainability and starts to argue about their sustainability credentials. It's one of the most significant shifts that entrepreneurs are zeroing in like uh, ants at a sugar pile and a picnic blanket on sustainability as, as something they should spend their time on. And the third? Oh, and the third dimension is the renewed presence of the state. You know, I think of my life, I was born in 1972, as being dominated by Milton Friedman telling the state to get away and then President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher picking up that baton and saying, stay away, state, the market does it better. And I think through the work of economists like Mariano Mazzucato or Bill Janeway and Carlotta Perez, we're starting to see the state understand its raison d'etre and get much more confident. And when you hear what uh, President Macron has to say, or even some of the British politicians about what the state could do, how they could create missions to help the market move in the right kind of way, I think that gives you some reason to be a little bit optimistic. And I should say that within the very rapidly moving startup entrepreneurial scene in Europe and in the UK, a large proportion of the funds that the venture capitalists put into these eclectic founders actually comes from the state, the European Investment Fund or the British Business Bank. So the state is present and I think they're starting to get some kind of a useful framework and some champions in the form of these public intellectuals to say, listen, you need a seat at the table and you can help shape some of this. So I suppose the reason that I think that all three of them, well, the first is definitely true. So that's 10 years ago's predictions turning out not to be even close to being fast enough to the pace of change and progress, let's call it progress. But the second and the third, the capacity of tech entrepreneurs and other people with that mindset to tackle this problem, and then the role of the state becoming something that is more broadly accepted, at least among the public intellectuals. There still seems to me, a, if you think about the next 10 years, a likely mismatch with the politics. So each of these things is at one remove from the most visible manifestations, both of our politics and of the climate crisis. You know, Australia is where it's happening at the moment, but it could happen anywhere. And there's a time lag here. Even the tech people who are used to doing these things quickly, given the nature of the problem and the lag in the problem, I mean, the buildup is going to increase over this decade. It's very unlikely, even if we adopt the new green technologies, that carbon emissions will be down in 2030 to the point where we think we've got this problem yep. licked. And the state, even if it plays this role, it's not visible in its public-facing political activities. Both of these things are happening to the side or behind what most people experience as politics. And our politics is fractious and polarised, including around climate. So if you look at that 10-year story and say it is, we really make progress in the ways that you say the state does the heavy lifting, the tech people do the nimble stuff, the politics could still get worse. In fact, I think the politics probably is going to get worse before it gets better. I agree with you. I'm smiling because, of course, I was a little bit optimistic in what I described. But I, I completely agree with you. The politics could very well get in the way. The cultural dimension to our politics now, which is this nasty cleavage, the somewheres and the anywheres, or however we want to create that dichotomy, the people who are going to go off and build these these things, these entrepreneurs, they come from a particular tribe that self-identifies across borders. 
at a time when states and nations are starting to say borders are what matter, borders are what bring us together. And so these people are predominantly, in my experience in the UK, Remainers. They were not leavers, couldn't really find any. And so they're already, in some sense, standing on the wrong side of where the politics has has headed. And, And then you've got this question around how rapidly do these changes need to take place and how do you get populations to accept these changes? We're recording in January and it's veganuary, which means vegan January, I guess. It's much easier to get a 20-year-old to buy into veganuary than it is to, to get a 70-year-old to do so. And so we're, we're left in this gap, this divergence between where the, these activities will take place and actually where most voters live and where most voters emotionally and intellectually live is where the parties and the politicians will tend to skate. And so I think there are reasons to say, listen, the politics will get much, much more complicated. And we have to be really careful in thinking that we're just going to throw this at some bright young bucks and they'll solve the problem for us. So we're going to come on to a second to what I think of as the Dominic Cummings agenda, which is part of this whole intellectual space, but he's doing it now as politics. He was doing it as a blogger (laughs) and now he's running the country. So it's an interesting experiment. You talked about people like Mariana Mazzucato, Bill Janeway. They're essentially telling historical stories where if you take a step back and look at the last 100, 150 years of quote-unquote progress, you see the crucial role that the entrepreneurial state, I think of it as the heavy lifting state, the state that can do things that the market can't, including wasting vast amounts of taxpayers' money on things that don't work before stumbling across the thing that does work. But the time lags with that, as with climate, climate is such a nightmarish political problem because of the 20, 30 plus year time lags. But you have the same time lags with that too. The heavy lifting happens and then 30 years later you get fracking. The heavy lifting happens and then 30 years later you get the internet and then what can be built off the back of the internet. So the state does this, but the state does not get the political rewards. I mean, the thing that we haven't got is a narrative in our politics now despite the efforts of people like Mariana Mazzucato or indeed John McDonnell. And it's not just electoral cycles. The time lags are too slow. The state may save us, but not in time for us to recognise it was the state that saved us. And therefore, the people who will say we've saved you are the tech people who are quick and nimble, no doubt building off the work of the state that was done 10, 15, 20 years ago. But I still find that gap is likely to be profoundly problematic for a problem like climate change. And and what visible states will mainly be doing over the next decade is not solving the problem, but dealing with the fallout from the legacy that has been built up in the last 30, 40 years of inaction. You mean in the sense of mitigation of the the disasters and mitigation of uh, industries that are are now facing sort of an economic lack of viability? Yeah. And I think If the most optimistic version of your story, which I think could well happen, which is we see incredible progress in this decade across these fronts. Nonetheless, the politics over that decade, while we're making the progress, as the climate deteriorates, because it will in this decade, whatever happens, will be disaster and crisis management on the part of states that look lumbering and slow. I think at some stage, the crisis management has to fall to the state. I mean, that's their their job in any time of crisis. The role that they can play becomes, I think, connected to 
the ability to articulate a picture, a picture that people can buy into. I mean, I think about the the moon landing and the process by which large parts of a nation coalesced around this quite theoretical idea and putting a man on the moon. If you can construct that kind of story, I think you can start to build a collective fiction, which may be very important in this case, that has people believing in it and therefore has some political capital. The thing that seems to be missing for us in the UK is someone who can stand up and really articulate that at a political level and say, we're going here because we need to go here. I mean, I look at Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and I think about the Estonian leadership and see people articulating clear visions that are slightly longer term and they're able to get, seemingly get their voters behind them. Now, I'm not the political expert, but my sense is that constructing that vision would create the cover for action that might last longer than an electoral cycle. I don't want to be super pessimistic. (laughs) Your predictions really put this into focus for me, thinking about the decade. It's going to be a decade of profound change. Let's hope it is the decade where at the end of it, if you and I are having this conversation, we see remarkable change in how people think about and then have engaged with the climate crisis. But the climate is going to be worse. So it's not like the moon landing in that at the beginning of the decade, you say you, the American president, whoever says, let's do this by the end of the decade. And then by the end of the decade, you do it. At the beginning of the decade, you say, let's do this. And by the end of the decade, on the one hand, you are doing it in the deep background and it's manifesting in cheaper energy prices and people changing their habits in relation to driving and how they heat their homes. And that that is seen. And yet, almost certainly around the world, the climate crisis has worsened. And who knows, maybe democratic politics will adjust to that cognitive dissonance. Mm. I don't think there's anything in history to parallel it with, so we don't know. But it's at least possible that it's really uncharted territory for this kind of politics as as we tackle the problem and the problem gets worse simultaneously. Yeah, let me give you the bearish side of this of this story. So the bearish side, of course, is that with all these technologies that are making it easier to tackle you know, renewable power and so on, we're also constructing technologies that make it easier to build walls rather than bridges, whether they're digital walls or physical walls. And so against the backdrop of a rapidly worsening climate against the backdrop of the demographic transition in Africa, which means lots and lots of kids becoming adults, and the the warming of the Sahara, we would expect to see a migratory pressure. And it's becoming cheaper and easier than ever before to use technology to create physical and virtual walls. Now, a London writer called John Lanchester, who wrote a book called The Wall, where he describes essentially that. He describes a Britain which is surrounded by a very tall granite obsidian black wall that prevents migrants coming in and out. Now that's an immediate thing that can be built within an electoral cycle. They haven't done as quickly as they might have done in the US, but in the UK with probably two terms of conservative government coming up, one could imagine policies like that. And the the way in which we talk about people who are on boats crossing the North Sea or crossing the Channel has got that negative association. We are pushing a negativity around that language that others them in a particular way. One of the things that concerns me, and I sort of hinted at it in my essay, is that the start of that is really facilitated by what we can do now with 
AI and tracking and identifying people from a distance and drones and all those sorts of things. So, of course, the pessimistic side of this would be we could make our island nation even more island-like with the help of these advanced digital technologies. And in the face of a climate crisis and a worsening climate, that might be an appealing thing for a, a government to do because they can show results pretty quickly. And I suspect that the the worsening climate in the UK context probably won't manifest itself in the way that it will in other parts of the world. I mean, if you think about the next 10 years, the one thing that we don't know, I mentioned at the beginning, you said all of this might be moot if something goes really badly wrong. It's impossible to say where the most acute manifestation of the climate crisis is going to happen. We can say with some confidence where it's unlikely to happen. It's unlikely to be Canada. Who knows, right? It's probably unlikely to be the UK. Canada would bear the knock-on effects even if it happened in Central America as people right. move north. We would bear the knock-on effects if it happens in North Africa. But you know, a decade is a long time. We've almost got three time frames at work here, and this will get us onto the Cummings agenda. We've got the rapid, nimble tech entrepreneurial mindset. We've got electoral cycles and democratic politics. And we've got the deep generational shift that the state puts in to provide the basic infrastructure on which people can build. And they are as out of sync as they have ever been. I'm not saying that they can't work together, but they are fundamentally out of sync. They are fundamentally out of sync. And it's one reason why I think we need to be able to have stories of progress, milestones of achievement, whether it's that we've turned off the last coal power station in the UK. These are things that give will give people reasons to feel optimistic, reasons to feel that it's it's a fight worth fighting for because they can see that little beachhead captured and we are making progress to a particular destination. I think without those, it becomes very, very difficult and we have to kick the can back at the technocrats to technocratic decision-making. We let Whitehall worry about it and then it becomes a little bit more brutal and less inclusive. So that, that time frame mismatch is part of what then gathered a certain amount of media coverage but I think there's something more serious going on here than the weirdos agenda (laughs) which is Dominic Cummings who has proved himself to be among other things I don't know you might not be happy with this word but a remarkably successful political entrepreneur remarkable absolutely happy with okay it's not the remarkable word you're happy with the entrepreneur for him I, I think he's very very entrepreneurial he's willing to break rules he is willing to put his head up above the crowd uh, and, and risk a, failure risk failure and I've, you cannot deny the scale of his achievement in his part in the brexit uh, play out at both ends <laughs> the referendum end and the election end so he now has a relatively free hand i guess to at least think about putting some of the things he's been writing over the last few years in his really interesting but long and wordy blog into practice and what's captured people's attention is his job ad that turned out to be illegal in some way because he's not allowed to recruit people to the civil service. But anyway, he wants certain kinds of people to come into government, into Whitehall. He's not trying to recruit candidates for the next general election. And the kind of people he wants, physicists, data scientists, so on, people with experience of tech startups, he explicitly says that, people who have experienced world in that nimble, willing-to-fail space. And it's because he thinks, and this goes back to his experience uh, when he was working with Michael Gove in the Department of Education, that the civil service is just this kind of dinosaur and it's where ideas go to die. And so he's trying to somehow merge two mindsets. And various people have pointed out that it's going to be difficult, but it may not be impossible, but it's going to be difficult. So you have a lot of experience of the 
the tech entrepreneurial nimble side of this. When you think about what it would be to take that mindset and plug it in to a nation state bureaucracy, how does it look to you? Does it look quixotic or does it look possible? I think he underestimates the the scale of the challenge. Technology companies, these fast-growing startups that deliver something that people didn't even know they wanted, are not built by having a couple of data scientists and a couple of women who had physics degrees put together. There's a whole infrastructure that surrounds them around the expectations of their early customers, their access to finance and to capital, their willingness to tolerate failure. So what you can do with bringing these bright sparks, data scientists and physicists in, is bring some cognitive diversity to your problem solving, which always helps. And as he said, as an Oxbridge humanities graduate, enough of the Oxbridge yes, humanities I want to be the only one yeah, which who is, can which refer I think to Thucydides. Is, yes. That's fine. <laughs> yes. uh, and one of the truths about the technology industry is that it is constantly a game of uncertainty. And most technology companies don't succeed. And the people who back them, the venture capitalists, live in a world where if they're doing really well, they're getting about half of their bets right. And so what that means is that, that you have to accept failure. You have to accept half of your projects dying and losing tens, maybe hundreds of millions of pounds, because the other half of them will do really, really well. And that's why tech companies and investors are willing to take the risks they do because of these portfolio effects. The trouble is that government is not allowed to do that. It has to be accountable for its losses and doesn't really get the upside of its gains. And I think that is an issue. I think governments have been really strongly chastised by by Reagan and by Thatcher, and we're still living from the spanking they got in the 80s, that prevents them taking a few risks. They're measured by their efficiency, their value for money. But innovation is actually the absolute reverse. Even if you're very disciplined about your innovation, which most of the successful technology companies were in their founding, the nature of exploration is that you're going to lose a few guys out of the tent. And if that, that means millions of pounds in this case. Or billions. Or billions, yes. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. He says, coming on this I Want Weirdos blog, he lists things that he wants people to read. He has a kind of, one of the themes is reasoning with uncertainty, he thinks. And he's right. There's some really interesting recent work in cognitive science and elsewhere about this and and also about how the human brain deals with uncertainty. But I tend to agree with you that politics is about reasoning with uncertainty. Business is about reasoning with uncertainty. Technology and technology entrepreneurship is too. But it's what are you uncertain about? So as you describe it, if you're in a tech startup, you don't know what's going to work. Mm. And so you're looking for the thing that's, that's going to work. If you're in politics, you don't know what's going to fail. <laughs> and you genuinely don't know where the failure is that might really bite you. 
That's the thing about democracies, that they are open to the fact that failure is uncertain. And people are going to tell you that they're really unhappy in an area you weren't aware that they were unhappy because the communication will come through. And so it just must be a different mindset. And I'm not saying you can't find some way to bring these two things together, but it must be a different mindset. The Whitehall mindset serving democratically elected masters must include far greater risk aversion because the thing you don't know is what's going to kill you as opposed to what's going to make you billions. And you're more worried about, frankly, what's going to kill you than what's going to make you billions. And understandably, now maybe I'm a bit naive, but I also think there's a, there's a role for the state in looking after the least well-off. And so you have to, at some point, be concerned with your experiments and the extent to which they are affecting those who are living without. And I think entrepreneurs don't often start there. I mean, the typical entrepreneurial journey is that your products get bought by, you know, the Tesla and Apple fans, and then they work their way down the economy to people who are you know, less affluent and less well off until they become ubiquitous. We start at the top down in entrepreneurship in general. So it is genuinely trickle down, which, which is the thing that we, on the whole, I think, don't believe works at a national economic level. Yeah, it's not necessarily deliberately so, but it just tends to be that early adopters tend to be younger and more affluent and living in cities. And that's how you turn your Netflixes from a product that's only watched in California to one that's watched by hundreds of millions of people around the world. I think that there are a few areas within which we have to rather fine tune the approaches that have worked really well in the tech industry. There are some that I do think, some approaches that will be really, really useful. I mean, w- one of them is this idea that if you have a data scientist, you can bring data and analytic framing to a question and they can help end debates, in my experience, that have been driven by opinions. We, we love acronyms in the tech industry. And one acronym is the HIPPO, the highest paid person's opinion. Uh, and the joke is that in many companies, decisions are made by the HIPPO and the data scientist can come in and kill the HIPPO because we substitute opinion with some data, some experiment that's been run that gives us an insight into the direction we need to take. And I think that that could very much help the type of decision making that we, we need. But I think the parts that I find harder to understand is how do you bring a culture of risk taking and exploration, which means failures, to this apparatus? I've only ever met Dominic Cummings once. um, And in that conversation, we did talk about, it was with Helen Thompson as well, we did talk about why he thought physicists, this is a couple of years ago, but it was after the referendum, where he said the physicists really helped. How did they help? And to summarise it, it was because physicists are better at spotting bullshit, in his words. It doesn't matter what the field is. And it may be a sort of temperamental thing as well. They're also less embarrassed about saying, that's bullshit. But they were his kind of bullshit detector. And I totally get that. I totally get it. It's not just about cognitive diversity. It's also about ingrained mindsets are really hard to shift. And you do need to shake it up. And you do need people who can come in, like you say, and end an argument by bringing in something that people just can't argue with. I see all that. I think Cummings would also say that he's actually doing this in order to help the least well off. So for him, this is the central thing is those towns that now have elected Conservative MPs, if they aren't in better shape in five years, there's this line that someone said in the Conservative government, if, as it were, I don't know what the town is, but various northern market towns, if their high street doesn't look better in five years time, we've failed. We have to make these better places to live. So we have to deliver. So it's about delivering. 
So I think he would think that these things not only are not at odds, they actually is part of what he's about. But then there's that question, what is the model, the kind of command and control model of tech entrepreneurship that he has in mind? And you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but there seem to be kind of two versions here. There's the Steve Jobs version, which is the intolerance of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And like, we're going to keep doing this until we get the thing that works. And then there's the kind of radically decentralized, we will run an organization where lots of people are doing lots and lots of interesting things so that we can find the one that really will deliver. Mm. And they're not the same. They're not. So one is a very hands-on, you know, Steve Jobs at any moment might burst into the room and start screaming at you. Let's assume that's Cummings. That's right. The other is like, we will let you get on with it because we know that the way to find solutions is to allow a thousand flowers to bloom. And yet both of them in a way are at odds with the Whitehall set up. I mean, Steve Jobs is not going to be a successful head of the British Civil Service. And the British Civil Service is not going to run like Google technology experimentation. Yeah. Is there a missing model? That I... No, I mean, I think those are essentially the, the two models that uh, companies run by. And lots of people want to be Steve Jobs, but only one person ever was. And no one has filled his has boots. So however hard technology entrepreneurs have tried, however great their companies have been, we haven't found the Steve Jobs too. Just out of interest, is the Tim Cook model? So Apple is well, Tim the, Cook the is... biggest company in the history of the world. That's right. And it's grown massively since Steve Jobs died. Yes. I mean, exponentially, actually. Yes. I don't know enough about him. Does he have a... He, could he, you do him in Whitehall? Uh, he is a... He seems nicer. He is a operational person with process excellence who is renowned for the barrage of questions and a particular attention to detail, but maybe not the gestalt thinking that you get from Steve Jobs. And the thing that Apple had, and, and many of the tech companies that we probably use every day, was they had a very, very clear vision of where they wanted to go. It was a rallying cry that you can, you can extend. And even now, if you look at criticisms of Tim Cook, some of them are often related to the loss of that joyful experience that Apple products used to give you under the Johnny Ive, Steve Jobs days. My understanding of politics, and I think you need the same kind of rallying cry in order to make significant changes. And I'm not sure we hear that. So I think that Cook has succeeded because Steve Jobs created a framework of what does Apple stand for? The same is true for Netflix. There's a very famously robust culture that they've written about in a 119-page slide deck. What does the British government now stand for? What is that rallying cry? And I think the lack of that cry is something that makes me think, well, how can they succeed at doing the thing they want us to do if they can't put it down on a single sentence, think different? Let's get Brexit done. Is that That's what it is? Rally is that the rally cry? Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe it is. I, I I find it hard to, to get excited about that in any way because I don't know what it means. So if I come back to the question of are there other models, the roughly speaking aren't. You, know, you command and control or you let experiments happen on the edge. One book I read last year that made me think quite a lot about the importance of doing this at the edge was Hilary Cottam's book, which was about rethinking the welfare state and how we deliver welfare rather than at a macro level, but at really at the front lines. And she spends a lot of time with very vulnerable people in sort of these failing towns. And the kind of prescriptions she identifies are so specific, they're so frontline, and they're so human, and they are supported by little bits of technology here and there, 
but they work and they work in very different ways to someone who sits in Whitehall and looks over a panopticon and moves a few mouse pointers to sort of change a system. I read that book and I thought, well, this is a book that Whitehall needs to read and they need to think about how they deliver services this way. I didn't get that kind of thinking in the Cummings blog. I got a much more of a technocratic view that said the technology allows us to control our economies and our outcomes far better than we ever have done before. So we better get bright technologists in who can make that happen. On those two models of how you might run a successful tech startup and turn it into a global monolith, the language that we use to describe them is sometimes political in that Steve Jobs is a tyrant. I mean, it was a tyrannical style, I think. He might even accept it himself. Right. And then the other model is broadly anarchic. At some level, it's anarchic. I mean, the point about it is that it is really as unconstrained as possible within the limits. And democratic politics is, by definition, neither of those two things. So it's not tyrannical and it's not anarchic. There's presumably a risk as we move it through the 21st century and politics tries to align with this technology that it does become either more tyrannical or more anarchic. On the tyrannical side, there are non-democratic governments trying to right. do what Cummings wants to do and make government much more efficient, deliver better, use data and data science to produce the outcomes that their populations want. The Chinese government won, but mm -hmm. not the only one. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a question that takes you beyond 2030. But do you have any concern, or maybe it's not even concern, that the broader trend of the marrying of a tech mindset with a political challenge is away from democratic politics. I read your great book last year and it made me feel very sombre about democracy. And, you know, now that I look at the technologies that are coming to, to bear, I do see that they provide so many opportunities for anti-democratic affordances, a sort of authoritarianism you've described China. And I think one of the battles that we will have over the next 10 or 15 years is how do we get people to care enough to fight for rights that they don't necessarily feel right now so that we do have a state that is governed by some kind of rules. So those rights include things like the right to be manipulated or not by algorithmic nudges delivered across every single platform, the right to some degree of due process when it comes to accessing facial recognition. There's a whole set of rights that we don't yet have because the technology has raced upon us that we now need to care enough about to fight for through the mechanisms that are available to us. If we don't do that, then my sense would be that the state will find it very tempting to use these technologies as methods of control and methods of investigation. I mean, there are very few cases where, you know, a state could prosecute with a particular type of technology that they haven't overstepped their remit, whether it's the local council using CCTV footage to figure out people who are getting disability benefits wrongly, or whether it's unauthorised wiretapping of large numbers of citizens. You know, states like other powerful institutions tend to overstep the mark a little bit. And we do have, I think, a fight on our hands to go out and say, listen, what kind of society do we want? What kind of rights do we need to have? And how are we going to make that happen? I'm not sure whether anyone's going to care enough outside of, you know, a few activists, unfortunately. So again, to give this a, a broad historical frame, because you're, and we'll, we'll tweet the link to your predictions, they're really interesting and really 
challenging. And they are a mix of optimistic and pessimistic. But you frame it yourself against, as you say, your, I'm a bit older than you, so I'm going to flatter myself, your and my lifetime story, which is the living in, for want of a better word, the neoliberal world. There's also this kind of rumbling in the background that you hear from people on the left that maybe this technology will allow us to go back. And the thing that will allow us to go back to is the thing that Hayek and Friedman killed, which is planning. People write a lot now about Allende's experiments in Chile before Pinochet right. came and killed it all, literally and metaphorically, with new technology that would allow a kind of planned Marxist economy. Unfortunately, in 1972, the technology wasn't up to it. Right. But what if it were up to it today? And you start to hear the rumblings of that thought that we could actually bracket the neoliberal experiment by going back to the thing that was impossible in the 20th century and might be possible in the 21st, which is the man, the woman, the person in Whitehall genuinely knowing best. I mean, having a kind of panoptic oversight. It sounds a bit dystopian, mm. but it's also, if your political mindset is that way, potentially a liberation because it is the thing that you've always dreamed of, which is the ability genuinely to manage an economy. Yes. Now, you're not going to hear that in Silicon Valley. You're not going to hear it from people who have grown up not just with a kind of neoliberal mindset, but with an entrepreneurial mindset. But you do increasingly hear it from people who are looking for the next big thing. I tend not to think about returns to, because I think we're inspired by what may have happened in the past, but so many of the other conditions are different when we get to them in the future, that that's only ever an inspiration. And I'm slightly caricaturing it. I don't yeah. think anyone who's advocating automated luxury plans. communism, yeah. whatever, actually wants to do it like they might have done it in yeah. in Chile in 1972. But So outside of the technology, one significant thing that has changed is that we now have such a strong body of academic work that says the theoretical underpinnings of neoliberalism are hokey. They don't stand up to examination. And we now have much better ideas about people's own individual preferences, how they make decisions, how they make decisions under certainty, how markets work, how rapidly capture can emerge, whether or not trickle-down works. I mean, you talked about Chile. I mean, Chile is a poster boy for the neoliberal, but sort of Friedman-esque. Poster boy for the Chicago boys. For the the Chicago boys, that's right. There is now an increasing body of economic theory that is more resilient than the very quick and dirties we use to build neoliberalism. And I think that's quite important because it creates a framing within which we can look at these these questions. I think it will be tempting for people to say, can we turn on a, a panopticon? So much so that I, uh, when I reread Brave New World over Christmas to get a, a flavour for all of this. The truth is, I think we're already starting to get there. So when I started working in 1994, companies had inventories, they had warehouses, you would, you'd buy a product that had been sitting in a shelf somewhere in, in a warehouse out of town for three months and they'd get it for you the next day. Well, here we are 25 years later, companies don't have warehouses now. Their warehouse is a digital record, the product is produced on demand, and it's popped into a supply chain that gets to us within 24 hours. And that is a significant shift from the old way of doing things where we didn't have the information to hand. So I think we've already started to march into a world where we're seeing some of the benefits of that kind of knowledge. It's not quite a panopticon because it lives in lots of different places, in Amazon and Google search terms, in the warehouse and inventory and supply chains of many, many different companies around the world. But we are starting to see those 
efficiencies emerge. And we've, we've been doing that over the last 20 or 30 years. The problem is, why didn't that make us feel happier? That's not my realm. That's your realm. It's because the politics didn't <laughs> didn't get it get it to, to work. You know, all of these efficiencies that we introduced, the fact that products are not metaphorically dying on the vine in a warehouse in the middle of nowhere, has not transpired into people feeling necessarily better about themselves. Certainly not in some of the richer countries. And when I think about this idea of of states marshalling control it'll be easier for them to do a better job because the data is out there. There are already these digital simulcra of parts of the economy living within private sector companies. But private sector firms have all, are already doing this and they have the incentives to continue to do it because it makes them f- perform better financially. So the idea of Dominic Cummings as the, the man sitting in front of a giant screen with lots of buttons to press and at the end of it all, towns in the north of England have better high streets... That's still remote. I think that's it's just harder. My experience of building companies is that it's always harder than you think, and it always involves getting very, very dirty and, and tired and being at the front line of it all. So we've still got lots to talk about, and we're going to talk about some more of it on your podcast, Exponential View. Your newsletter is where the predictions are. There's lots of really interesting stuff there too. If you Google Exponential View, you will find it all. And I hope you listen to the second half of this one as well. We'll be back in our usual slot on Thursday. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>